Hi, welcome to season three of the Sentac Podcast. The Society for Ear, Nose, and Throat Advancement in Children is a collective group of like-minded healthcare professionals involved in the care of children with hearing, breathing, speech, and swallowing disorders. We have an exciting lineup of guests and interviews for this season. We encourage you to subscribe so that you will not miss any of these upcoming shows. I hope you enjoy this episode. David Che. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Julian Smith. I'm a professor at Southern Connecticut State University. I teach dysphagia, pediatric dysphagia, nat and phys, all those good topics. And then I also work as a pediatric SLP at Yale New Haven Hospital. And I'm Madison Howe. I'm an audiologist at Arkansas Children's and also an instructor at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. And Javen, thanks for having us on here tonight. I'm really excited to talk about this. Um, this actually, the podcast kind of stemmed from, you know, a group of people at Syntac talking about how we don't really know the ins and outs of how other disciplines are training their students. And so um, I'm really excited to have Dr. Smith and Dr. Chi here to get to talk about um, how we train our students and learn a little bit more about how we can get more multidisciplinary involvement in that training. Awesome. All right. So today we have a pediatric oryngologist, a speech language pathologist, and an audiologist, uh, all pediatric. And we're going to, the first question is, Take us through the training pathway uh, that you go through in order to become a pediatric otolaryngologist, speech language pathologist, audiologist, uh, uh, starting from the beginning. Uh, who wants to start? I can start. And then um, so Madison and I are going to have some overlap. <laughs> um, so this is Julian Smith, uh, speech language pathology. Um, so our students start with obviously an undergraduate degree, um, typically in communication disorders. There are some students like myself that do degrees in other topics and then take the prerequisites um, that are equivalent to um, that undergraduate degree. Um, then there is a two-year master's degree. That is the degree that you need in order to practice in speech pathology. So um, that is going to be a difference between speech path and audiology. So we have a two-year master's degree, then a clinical fellowship once you've graduated for nine to 12 months. Um, as far as becoming a pediatric SLP in a hospital, like inpatient hospital setting, um, that clinical fellowship is going to be like hip to hip, one-on-one -on -one training, probably for most of that clinical fellowship. Um, whereas um, pediatric SLPs in a school setting might have less direct or less frequent supervision um, for that, that clinical fellowship training. Um, but either way, we've got a clinical fellowship after graduation. Um, I do want to point out that we SLPs do have an SLPD, a doctorate, clinical doctorate and SLP um, practice. But um, so that would be kind of the equivalent of like an OD or an MD, but we can practice with just the masters. We don't need a clinical doctorate in order to practice. Got it. So um, let me make sure I have this right. So uh, you get your bachelor's. Yes. Uh, and it, it can or be do whatever. the prereqs. Or yeah. your prereqs. Okay. And it can be whatever, right? It doesn't have to be. So most people, I think, for audiology and speech are doing an undergraduate degree in communication disorders. And it's the same undergraduate degree for both audiology and speech. Got there it. are weirdos that, like me that do it a different way. But, but the standard <laughs> is to do your undergraduate in communication disorders. 
Okay. I, so, I think Julian would agree. It's it's pretty evident while you're in that undergrad program if you're going to be heading down the speech route or the audiology <laughs> route. Oh, most, really? Most people, it's it's pretty uh, divided. You're either a, a speechy or an audiology kid. When you pretty speak. early on, people yeah. start to kind of differentiate. It's funny, yeah. Oh, interesting. So, so you guys kind of start together, and then uh-huh, along yeah. the along that pathway, you kind of figure out which direction you're going to go. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you don't declare an undergrad, right? So it's not like you say, like, I'm going to be an audiologist in undergrad. You're taking the same classes. You might take some different electives, um, but you you still either way graduate with that undergrad in communication disorders, but then you're applying for different graduate schools. And so you said it doesn't have to be a bachelor's, but there's prereqs. What are the prereqs are looking for exactly? So I know for speech, you have to at least have had um, like anatomy and physiology of the head and neck, um, intro to language disorders, intro to audiology. Oh, gosh, I should have been prepared with all our exact prereqs. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah, just generally. <laughs> Madison, yeah. fill in for me. What are the other prereqs? Um, I know for sure that articulation was one of them for both yeah. of them. But in my program, there was an Arctic 1 and an Arctic 2. And you didn't have to take Arctic 2 if you were going to go audiology. Mm. So that's kind of what broke it for me. I said, nope, <laughs> not taking that one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think there's a moment for sure where students either take a, a class, either a speech class or like intro to audiology where you just it clicks and you realize you found which one you're going to go towards. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So then you finish that. And then you apply for the next step. Right. Okay. Which is either your master's in speech pathology or your clinical doctorate in audiology. There is no like just master's in audiology, right, Madison? There used to be, but in 2007, it switched to a doctoral program. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, sorry, remind me, the master's in speech pathology is how long? Uh, typically two years. So it's typically like a year and a half ish of classes. And then that whole time you're doing like typically on campus, um, clinical practice, um, in your first year. And then your second year, you're doing off campus internships, externships, whatever you want to call them, um, in that second year of your master's program. So by the time you graduate with your master's, you have to have the standard used to be at least 400 hours of clinical directly supervised clinical practice in order to graduate with your master's and go into your clinical fellowship. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Um, you want to you take us the other route, Madison? Yeah. So, you know, once you realize speech is not for you, like I did in my <laughs> Arctic class. Um, so, you know, you still have to finish out. And, and it is uh, undergrad is primarily speech heavy, which is awesome because sure. um, I really feel like speech and audiology are on kind of on the same page from day one. There's a lot mm-hmm. of collaboration that happens even at the student level. Um, but same thing, you graduate undergrad, you apply for graduate school and you go for your uh, doctorate of audiology. It's a four-year program technically, but your last full year is sort of a residency externship year. So you're doing class and hands-on clinic all through your first three years. And then your fourth year, you're sent out into the world under the graces of supervision and get to give it a shot. So, um, and both of us, both um, speech and audiology, we take the exam called the Praxis through ASHA for certification. So, um, yeah, and especially like if you want to go into pediatric audiology and I think speech as well, you're applying for those externships a lot earlier. So like early in the beginning of your third year, um, you're kind of having to decide where you're going to go for your residency year. 
It's at least in speech, and I'd love to hear your perspective too. It is um, competitive and difficult to get pediatric medical setting um, internships, externships, whatever we're calling them. Now, I I don't want to leave out, I want to be very careful about not leaving out school SLPs Mm -hmm. in this conversation. They are still um, pediatric SLPs and they play a very important role in the multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary care of these children. Um, But those placements, there are more of them. There are more pediatric school SLPs. LPs than there are pediatric medical placements. So particularly if you're wanting a placement in like a NICU or PICU, um, those are really competitive and difficult to find. Yeah. Sorry, I, think- I, I don't understand the difference between uh, those two distinctions you made. Can you, can you uh, explain it to me one more time? Sorry. Between what do you mean school, school versus medical. medical? Yeah, SLPs. Maybe I'm so that's so funny. Maybe that's an artificial differentiation that is in the speech world. I don't know. Um, but there there's a lot of talk about these kind of two tracks of speech pathology, which I think are false. I think it's stupid, but this is the way it is, um, where people talk about school speech path and then medical speech path. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people even try to differentiate those programs. Um, my beef with that, of course, is that children with swallowing disorders are in schools and children who are in schools also come to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a silly distinction. But um, when you're looking at your externships, internships, typically, like at least at Southern, you have to have one school placement and then one like adult, typically medical placement. Does that make sense? Got it. Yep. Yep. Got it. Um, And I think... One other thing to point out that's unique about both the speech and audiology programs, specifically when we're talking about that clinical training year, which is your kind of end of your second year for speech and your mm-hmm. fourth year for audiology, they're not always paid positions. So, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of competition, not only for the type of supervision and type of um, clinical experience that you're going to get, but then there's also competition because they're not always paid or come with benefits. So do some, uh, do some of your... Some of y'all get paid during that year? Some of us do, yes, but they're not all paid. But speech, I guess, is none, none of speech. I didn't realize none of speech were. No, no. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, no. Not, it's definitely not anything glamorous, but there is yeah. a small stipend for some of the positions. Oh, no, you're typically paying grad school fees uh, to work for free. <laughs> now, you're also getting excellent education and supervision, yeah. obviously, but yes. Well, it's, I think that is a little different than like the the MD model, as as my understanding. Uh, yeah. So, so that fourth year aid position. Usually, the institution determines it. Um, you know, it's it's a big source of debate in the audiology world. A lot of <laughs> institutions will tell you do not accept a fourth year position that's unpaid. But I mean. When you're a student that's craving knowledge and your right. dream job opens up, you would pay them to go work there for a year. So um, it's really institution specific. When when do you find out what you're going to do your fourth year? For, so audiology is, and I, I don't know if speech is kind of moving towards the same model. In audiology right now, we're moving towards getting everybody on the same timeline. So students aren't stressed about taking one offer and not waiting for the other one that they want. So we're trying to get everybody on the same timeline. So for pediatric placements right now, you're applying in end of August, finding out your offer in October and accepting before October's over. So you're accepting in the fall of your third year, like almost a full year before you go off for your fourth year. Oh, very cool. I think it's, it. we don't have quite that long timeline. It's a little bit, um, 
more immediate just because our, our whole program is only two years. <laughs> um, but I will be honest and say that I'm not an expert in that. We have um, full-time coordinators that do all of that placement activity, help with the applications, everything. And I am not that person. So there are people that really understand that, but not me. And and so the residents you end up doing your fourth year, does that more or less determine what how, how you're going to practice audiology when you finish? You know, with, with pediatrics, I'll say, I think it's, it's hard to go backwards. So it's hard not to do a pediatric fourth year and move into a pediatric fourth year. Um, but it, you can move from pediatrics into adults. So I always tell students, if you're yeah. even considering that you want to work with kids at any point in your career, do a fourth year in pediatrics, not only because it'll get your foot in the door, but also when you're working with kids every day in the week, you'll quickly realize if you <laughs> want to do it or not. <laughs> so I'm sure Julian feels the same way. Once you do that every day as a student, um, but it's the same thing with older people. You know, if you're in a nursing home, every day, you'll quickly learn if that's the placement for you or not. I quickly learned the difference in the smells, shall we say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cool. I'm learning a lot here. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then David, do you want to tell them uh, how, how it's done in the uh, MD world or MD slash DO? Yeah. So I think it's amazing that we all come from all these different backgrounds and we take these winding paths and then ultimately we become labeled as a pediatric otolaryngologist. Mm. On the physician side, we all start with undergrad, and we can major in any major uh, as long as we fulfill the pre, uh, the pre-med requirements and then take the appropriate MCAT exam. Uh, afterwards, we all apply to med school during our undergrad years and hopefully uh, get to the desired med school that we want to go to. And uh, after we uh, finish our four years of medical school, um, we all decide a specialty. And usually during the third year, we have to finalize that decision. And we, and most people in pediatric or in otolaryngology have to, um, to work hard, do well on their standardized tests, get their appropriate letters of recommendation, show some sincere demonstrated interest in otolaryngology, either with research or some clinical experience, and then apply for an otolaryngology residency. And if uh, all works out well, then we start a, a five-year residency uh, with the first year being a intern year and four years of otolaryngology. Um, the intern year, uh, as Javen can attest, is a various uh, experience of uh, grueling exposure to, to, um, to medicine and surgery. Uh, nowadays, it's a little bit more regulated, but those are times that uh, for some of the uh, older uh, colleagues, they did on call every other night or every third night, staying up and uh, taking care of patients on the floor in the ICU. And then during the four years of residency of otolaryngology, um, we, we all get exposed to different disciplines of ENT. This may include head and neck cancer, laryngology, rhinology, otology. And for those who pick pediatric otolaryngology, we... Um, we decide that that is a career path we go to. And I think most people who go into PEDS are genuinely good, uh, great people. They love kids, they like to take care of kids, and they like the fact that uh, some of the little things that we do make kids better, such as ear tubes. Sometimes some of the bigger things that we do uh, makes children equally well, whether it's cochlear implants, 
ear surgery or those who are involved in big head and neck cancer for kids or um, laryngotracheal reconstruction for those who are trying to remove the tracheostomy tubes um, after reconstructing their airway. So that we all applied to pediatric uh, uh, otolaryngology fellowships, usually during our fourth year of our, um, our residency. And after our residency, we do either a one or two year fellowship in pediatric laryngology. Um, uh, nowadays, I think it's more common to have a one-year fellowship. And during that time, um, some of us further subspecialize within pediatric laryngology and to find a career niche uh, that is uh, that works out well, that allows us to pursue our passion. Can I ask, um, so how easy is it? So say you do your residency and then you do your specialized year fellowship. How easy is it to to then switch specialties? Do you have to redo a fellowship? Do you do, redo residency or are you stuck where you're stuck? Yeah, so I think usually most of the uh, individuals who pick pediatrics hopefully are are committed to that field. Uh, nowadays, some people are doing even additional fellowship in after pediatric uh, laryngology to focus on pediatric voice or pediatric okay. otology. And that may be an additional year uh, okay. separate fellowship because that is um, with additional training in a specific field. Yeah, and when you finish um, your general residency, you're considered a general otolaryngologist. And so you can really do anything, you know, as a generalist. So, so you see some people who do like a pediatric fellowship, for example, and then they take maybe a private practice job where they see adults and kids. Oh. And then maybe their practice goes one direction or another where they see less and less kids. Um, okay. So you're not, you're not necessarily just pigeonholed after that, but... If you wanted to do, you know, maybe like an academic job, uh, you would need to do like an additional fellowship, which you can do, you know, and people do. An additional fellowship as opposed to like a PhD? Interesting. Yeah. David, David could you explain the magic that is matching? Because I, I get so excited on match day to celebrate with everyone, but I'm going to be <laughs> honest, I, I don't really know what I'm celebrating. <laughs> Yeah, this is uh, it truly is magic of match. Um, one of the interesting aspects, there's two levels. First of all, as a medical student, uh, each student lists the uh, places that they interviewed in their priority um, uh, where they want to go to. And each program lists all the students that they are interested in and ranks them uh, from one to the number of uh, uh, students that they want to match with. And uh, amazingly, a computer spits out a result and uh, the student ends up uh, finding out where they may be spending the next four to five years uh, yeah. for residency. And uh, it, somehow or another, it always works out for, for those who match these uh, programs and, and they become an otolaryngologist by training at the specific institution. It is a huge celebration, probably the culmination of uh, the four years of medical school to uh, find out and celebrate together in, in one um, morning or afternoon where this computer generation, generated list spits out the uh, final results. <laughs> yeah, it's a fate determining computer. Yeah, we've had rumors of, of going to a model like that in audiology, but uh, maybe someday it'll happen. I think as we continue to grow the audiology programs and graduate more students, it's almost going to be needed someday. Yeah, and you may ask why they do this. Well, it allows 
each um, student to interview all the different places and not feel like they have to make a decision on the spot if there was an offer there. And likewise for the uh, programs to interview all the different students that they had intended to do so and then rank the ones that they uh, uh, prioritize. Ultimately, we always say that everyone matched that number one place and each of the uh, programs like to say that they got their top choices and because this is all confidential, but it's an exciting time for to determine the future for both the residents as well as for the programs. Yep. This also occurs for pediatric laryngology. So after you're done with your residency, we do it one more time. And uh, and once we're done with interviewing all the different pediatric laryngology fellowship programs, you have to, again, do the match process to, to determine your fate once more. All right. That was great, guys. Let's move on to the next question. So in your training, did you get exposure to multidisciplinary care? And if so, uh, when and at what level? And maybe share some stories you can remember. Let's go in the same order. Let's start with you, Jillian. Oh, I was hoping you weren't, hoping you weren't going to do that. Um, oh, so I think Madison. <laughs> yeah, I can go first if you need a second. Right. Yeah. So um, in in graduate school, I definitely didn't receive any like formal training on multidisciplinary care. We learned a lot about when to refer to ENT, but that was kind of the end of the line as far as classroom instruction goes. So my first real multidisciplinary experiences were kind of in my third and fourth years when I'm out in the clinic at ENT sites. And I remember being scared to death to go talk to an ENT for the first time because I had never really interacted with one very much um, as an audiology student. And um, my confidence was lacking a lot when I'd go up. And I remember the first time um, an ENT doctor kind of gave me a little pushback on the results I was getting. And I was just shaking in my boots. And I was like, yes, there anything you say, I'm going to go back and redo it completely again. Um, I've come a long way since then. Um, but I do think, you know, it's something that we need to integrate more um, and not just send students out on clinical rotations and expect that they're going to know how to um, collaborate and interact with each other. So my experiences initially were a little um, intense, but, you know, um, knowing what I know now and being able to sit with, you know, two ENTs on a podcast, um, it's, it's come changed a lot. And I, I hope to see change in the future too, with, um, the way we're training students. That's great. You want to go next, David? Can yeah. I be really annoying and interrupt though? And just say, oh, what, can we have just a 30 second conversation about the terminology that we're using? Are we talking multidisciplinary? Are we talking interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary? The Syntac website says interdisciplinary and they are technically different things. So I just um, wanted to be annoying and bring that up. <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah. And it's funny because we, I'd say nowadays we're using the term multi more often. Hmm. Um, I don't know. What would you say is the real difference between multi and, and inter? So the way that it was explained to me is like multidisciplinary is just multiple people are involved. Multiple disciplines are involved in some way. Interdisciplinary is when you're collaborating on the care. And then transdisciplinary is when you are like actually creating goals together. Um, so I typically, I feel like um, like ASHA has standards for interprofessional care or interdisciplinary, meaning that we are co directly collaborating. We're not just like in the same building, but we're collaborating, but maybe not quite at the transdisciplinary level where we're making goals together. But I, what, is, what have y'all done with that? 
I would, I would say generally when I use the term multidisciplinary, I'm kind of encompassing all three of those, but that's okay. awesome the way you put it. Yeah. Um, I'm always thinking of us all together and interacting and making plans together. Like in our multidisciplinary clinics, that's really what we're kind of doing is working together. Um, but yeah, I, I like, I like how you put that. It's even more specific. Okay. Anyway, back to David. Yeah. So, um, I think, uh, as in the medical side, we get a very basic exposure to multidisciplinary care when we're students, because we, we see that when we're doing our rotations, we consult different specialists to take care of a patient, whether it's uh, another surgeon, another uh, medical specialty, and we are involving the different disciplines to take the best care of our patient and to get their input. Um, Perhaps in residency, we see a little bit more of that and more in a, a, a deeper perspective when we participate in various uh, boards, whether it's like a tumor board or a hearing board, and we get to present the patients, but then we wait to hear from the perspectives of our colleagues, um, the medical oncologists, the, the radiation oncologists, uh, and their perspectives. Um, and further, as we get into uh, otolaryngology and, and pediatric otolaryngology, for example, on the hearing side, we hear the perspectives of our audiologists. We hear the perspectives of our speech and language pathologists. Uh, we hear the social work involved. We hear the pediatric uh, developmental specialists who all chime in and, and we value everyone's input to make decisions together, for example, for a cochlear implant candidacy. And I think that's where we start to see that in our medical side. And I think as we step back, we recognize the importance of all the different perspectives to make the best decision for our patient. That was that's really great. beautiful, David. Yeah. I So um, I think it's my turn to answer this. I I want to briefly answer this question and then move quickly to the next one because I think I had a similar experience with Madison, which was that not a lot. We didn't do a ton of this. Now, this was back in like 2014, 2015. I think we had one event where we got together with nursing and um, occupational therapy, and we all sat around a table and shared what we did. And I came away from it feeling very confused and not sure what the point of it was. Um, and then when I went into my actual internships, was thrown into things like NICU rounds, where you are all sitting around the table and everyone's talking an actual true interdisciplinary, interprofessional experience. And I had, I feel like not been exposed to that, not to, you know, I think our profession has changed and grown a lot in this area. So that's why I'd love to, to move forward to kind of what are we doing now? Because I think it's better than maybe what I experienced. Yeah, let's, let's move to that next question. So all three of you are educators. Um, We'll start with you, Julian. Uh, first, tell me, you know, what you do, like, um, you know, who who you're teaching at what level, um, and and then tell me tell me the exposure that you know your trainees are getting to multidisciplinary care. Yeah, so um, I teach both undergraduate and graduate. Um, I feel like we don't do a ton of this type of conversation in the undergraduate level. We're still really getting the basics. You know, what is the larynx? <laughs> Right. Um, so when we get to the graduate level is when this conversation comes in. And I do want to, to be very clear that our governing body, ASHA, um, does have standards for interprofessional practice. So 
none of what I'm saying is like just me. It is our governing body. It is our educational review boards that are really moving in this direction. Um, so I just want to be clear about that. But as far as what I do, <laughs> um, at Southern, I teach um, the graduate level dysphagia courses um, and then medical topics. So this semester I'm teaching the med topics course. So it's like everything about medical SLP in a semester. It's an ongoing <laughs> evolving thing. Um, but so in our two-year master's program, um, we do have requirements as a university that are, again, set out by the ASHA standards, um, where the students have to participate in interprofessional education at every single level in every single semester. So this education starts at our first clinical experience, where they're doing kind of intro modules on IPP. Um, then as it goes along, they have to start doing these actual clinical experiences. And then we do um, college-wide interprofessional experiences. Um, and then they also have to write about interprofessional experiences they have in their externships. Madison, it looks like maybe you guys have something similar. So we, I think, are moving in a really good direction. I do want to just briefly talk about something really cool that we're developing at Southern, which I know a lot of other places are too. Again, I, I don't by any means think I'm alone in this, but we have started um, developing interprofessional simulation experiences. So we haven't awesome new simulation lab. We have high fidelity mannequins. We have standardized patients. Um, and we are starting to do um, these interdisciplinary experiences where the students actually have to go into a hospital room, see their patient, report back to a nurse, work with the other professions. And I think that's a really exciting direction that we are going in. I just, I, I sometimes feel so frustrated not to get ahead of the conversation, but of these IPP experiences where everyone sits around and just says like, I'm a speech pathologist and I do this. And then that's it. I really am looking at our fields to go more towards simulation experiences or, or um, experiences where you actually are seeing the other professions in action, not just describing what they do, but doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's some of the exciting stuff that we're doing at Southern and I know across the field. Very cool. You want to take it, Madison? Yeah. And and Jillian's so right. Like, this is something that has changed so much since I graduated. I don't even know how many years ago. Um, we, I work kind of two different roles right now. So as a audiologist and a preceptor for fourth year and third year students at Arkansas Children's, we are really integrating our students into multidisciplinary clinics. So they all get to rotate through our cleft clinic, our craniofacial clinic, our cochlear implant clinic. Um, and they are strongly encouraged to uh, interact with all of those team members. And, you know, if we're at a round table giving a, a summary report on patients, we really encourage our students to take the lead on that. Um, we also do something that is really cool that I think is starting to become a model at more hospitals especially training hospitals where we actually have um, an audiology rounds for the ENT residents and fellows once a month and a different audiologist will lead it every month and the topic changes um, throughout the year. So we might give a presentation on auditory neuropathy and how we as audiologists handle that. And then we leave lots of time for open discussion. And um, we even talk about like how to read an audiogram, you know, things that you've learned in med school at some point, but maybe you just need a refresher on. So um, it's a really cool thing. 
um, that we do at Children's. Um, and then I'm also teaching pediatric audiology classes through our medical school. Um, and in that model, I'm I'm really strongly encouraging students to get more involved. I actually assign them. They have to interview a pediatric ENT at some point during the semester just to get more comfortable talking to them, learning more about them. So I'm trying to integrate it at every level of, uh, of training. Um, but I definitely think as we grow those, those multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary clinics, that's a lot of opportunity for cross-training and, and collaboration with students. That's great. It's so interesting how, you know, when we actually work in a hospital, it, you can't be anything but interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Like I, I need an order from a doctor to do things. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, have to ask my ENT friends to evaluate patients because there are things that are my scope of practice. There is no option to not be. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I think we need to do a better job of explaining that and showing that to our students, um, that this is just what we do. This is how we breathe and live is with our colleagues and other disciplines. I think one thing too, that like, I even noticed like today I was up in the NICU and a nurse used some acronym and I was like, hold on, can you teach me what that is? Uh, I think that's like a really basic thing we can do. Like even with first year students is teaching them the lingo and abbreviations. I did a whole lecture recently on what is an MLB? What is a PET? What is a TNA for our audiology students? And it's all new knowledge to them. But when you're talking to an ENT, you know, you might feel like they're talking way above you, but it's really, it's just, it's just a difference in the vocabulary we use. So I think that's a really basic thing everyone can do is to just train each other on the verbiage that we use. One of the things that we're engaged is to participate in different meetings and conferences with our students, residents, fellows. Um, At Children's in Pittsburgh, uh, I participate in the hearing conference and we have a hearing clinic And we start off with bagel rounds and we call it bagel rounds because we eat bagels while we're discussing our patients during the day that are coming through. And the reason why we do that is we go through the roster to identify each patient, see their needs, and also so that the audiologists uh, and the ENT have the same message. We found that it's often confusing to the families when perhaps the ENT says something different from what the audiologist has said and vice versa. And so we'd like to have a unified plan for each of the patients that come through. And I think the parents and always appreciate that we always say to them that we talked about your child before coming to clinic. And this is our game plan that we'd like to move forward with. Um, we also have a hearing cock uh, conference that engages the residents and fellows. We ask them to present. It's a lunch and learn conference that we hold once a, once a month where uh, we talk about a topic, the, we alternate. The audiologists pick one topic for one month and ENT picks another, perhaps a medically-based topic, uh, another month. And it's a great opportunity for exchange of ideas. And we ask our residents and fellows to present. Uh, sometimes it's just a journal club of a topic such as auditory neuropathy or unilateral uh, cochlear implants. Um, but we engage them and it allows us to share ideas. And I think there's a, a, a positive synergistic attitude when we learn from each other. Uh, and it always helps when we're doing it over food. So it keeps us all content. <laughs> Something we can all agree on. <laughs> That's great. And then, so the last question was, how can we increase exposure for trainees to uh, 
multidisciplinary care, right? Seeing, uh, you know, learning and uh, getting exposure to, uh, you know, each other. Um, and you guys have already kind of touched on this, uh, Julian and, and Madison, you guys have already kind of talked about how, what you guys are doing in your programs. Um, any other ideas you guys want to touch on before we, uh, before we wrap up? One of the things that I've really enjoyed implementing is um, making my students um, participate in mock rounds, um, which is exactly what you guys have both been describing. It's awesome that you're doing that for your trainees. Our SLP trainees are not always getting that. And so um, I've tried to invite doctors into my classroom and force our students to go through mock rounds where they are listening about a variety of different patients and the experience of um, sometimes not being important. <laughs> so sometimes there are patients that we don't need a consult on and that that's okay as part of this multidisciplinary clinic. Um, and so I, I think it would be really great if you all would encourage your students to help us um, by coming into our classrooms, helping us go through mock rounds so that um, we can see what are your priorities rather than just what, you know, what is my dysphagia lens? What is the ENT lens? And is dysphagia the first priority. Maybe not. Maybe it is, but you know, um, so I think really encouraging um, each other to come into each other's classrooms. The other thing is that sometimes we have found pushback that like, oh, well, our students are really busy. Well, all of our students are really busy and are working really, really hard, but we still need to be the ones to prioritize this and say, yes, I know that you're busy, but this matters. This changes patient care. So we are going to participate in these activities. Yeah, I'll piggyback off that too. I think, you know, it doesn't always have to be this big grand master plan. Yeah. It can be very simple. And I think there's a lot of power even in just getting to observe half a day with a different specialty. So, you yeah. know, I love it when our new ENT residents come over and just say, can I just watch you see this patient? I just saw him and I'm just interested to see how, what you do works. Or um, if I have a person that a student with me and we're sending the kid down to speech next and they say, Hey, can I go watch the speech appointment too? Like don't discount that that can be a really powerful teaching moment, not only for the student to see the patient go through every process, but also just to learn more about the specialty and how it yeah. works and, and talk with confidence because you've seen it. So it doesn't always have to be this big grand ornate thing. It could be <laughs> as simple as saying, why don't you hop next door and watch Dr. Nation see that patient we just saw and, and kind of see yeah. how that goes. Yeah, I just want to build off that. And as Madison said, it's the reverse is true too. Um, we have our medical students who are so keen on seeing what's going on in the ENT world and residents who are trying to be so immersed in ENT, but it's also helpful to see how the other aspects of care are and not just seeing the report of the audiogram, but go watch how audiogram is performed. See that initial activation of a cochlear implant see how a swallow evaluation is done. I think it makes it more real. Mm -hmm. And we have such a unique opportunity to learn from each other. And we are so mm -hmm. immersed in how we do in our own silo. But then when we are able to expose our trainees to the different disciplines, they get a greater sense of what's going on. And I think they appreciate the patient care more as they understand that it is really a team of professionals who are working together for the best outcome for our children. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I realized I was speaking to a uh, speech language pathologist and I realized I've never actually seen a dysphagia study be done, a modified barium <laughs> swallow. And she invited me down. She's like, come, come check it out. See what it actually, see what it's actually like. 
And so yeah. uh, I have a date now to, to go actually see it happen. And I'm super excited. And I, I think those opportunities exist for everybody, right? So for our students, you know, even when you're, you know, eight, nine years into your career. So uh, it's yeah. always so fun to learn from each other. And, and there's so much yeah. more to be learned. And uh, it's so much better when we do it together. And I'll put, a, I'll put a plug in too. I think, you know, research can be such a wonderful opportunity. As an audiology student, one thing I left out as part of our training is we do have to do a capstone project before we graduate. And it's not as big as a, a dissertation. It's a smaller research project. But so many of them are purely audiology focused and only involve research from an audiology standpoint, but, you know, what if, what if we collaborated and worked with a, uh, you know, a resident and now we've got a multidisciplinary presentation mm-hmm. that could go a lot farther. So I think, you know, trying to add in some collaboration on research throughout training would be important too. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, guys, thank you. This was so fun. Uh, such a great conversation. I learned a lot. Uh, appreciate it. I know our members uh, will enjoy this as well. Uh, so thanks again. Thanks, well, Jaden. Thank you. thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. To stay up to date with everything Centac is doing, follow us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at ENT Kids, Twitter at Centac One. The dates have been announced for this year's annual meeting and will be November 7th to 9th in Denver, Colorado. Thanks again for listening to this episode.
I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. To stay up to date with everything Sentac is doing, follow us on social media, Twitter at Sentac1 and Facebook and Instagram at ENT Kids. If you missed it, go to our Instagram page to watch Dr. Safina Karani share a day in the life of a pediatric otolaryngologist from Dubai. The dates have been announced for this year's annual meeting and will be November 30 to December 2nd in Charleston, South Carolina. Don't forget to update your member profile on the Sentac webpage. The deadline is today, February 22nd. Thanks again for listening to this episode.